1: Welcome to Chatter, I'm David Priest. This week, political scientist and author Ethan Shiner on hockey, global politics, and freedom.
0: As a result of this rioting, and people referred to it as the hockey riots, the Soviet Union decided from this point on, Czechoslovakia doesn't get any kind of freedom anymore. The biggest way to succeed in communist society was to become a member of the Communist Party. There's another way of becoming a significant person in a communist country, and that is to become a great athlete. One Canadian hockey player referred to the Summit Series in 1972, Canadians versus Soviet Union, it's our way of life against theirs. So there's this real sense of when you play the Soviets in international hockey, this has real geopolitical implications.
1: Ethan Scheiner, welcome back to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me twice. This is really fun. You are the first repeat guest. And that that may be an oddity because you are also one of the guests with whom we've had the longest conversation, because previously we talked about the history of security and violence and politics surrounding the Olympic Games. It was right around Beijing, I believe, when the Beijing Olympics were going on. And of course, we're covering all of Olympic history. So that was a long conversation. And yet in that entire conversation, we only spent maybe two or three minutes talking about one of the best sports and politics stories of all time, which I wanted to isolate and talk explicitly about here. So welcome back as our first repeat Chatter guest. What do you think your initiation ritual will be?
0: I'm pretty sure, assuming given you know, that this is the world of podcasting, I'm pretty sure it'll be interpretive dance, which, oh. which the, the listeners will really enjoy. Uh, but, be... but if that causes any problems, I'm sure we can move on to something like acapella.
1: Well, given that you, you do interpretive dance while talking normally, nothing special, uh, but may, maybe we'll just see how it goes. And if the second uh, conversation does not go well, then, then I'll thank you at the end. Um, but yeah, to, to, to build on that earlier thing, I will link in the show notes to the previous conversation for people who do not remember our discussion on the long history of international politics and sports around the Olympics, particularly but today we're gonna we're gonna focus on one sport that we barely touched on there, and this is because of two things. One is you've been spending years uh, researching and writing a book, Freedom to Win, which is uh, what we'll talk mostly about here today. But it is at the same time that I was kind of thinking about these intersections of international politics and other issues of culture and history, and entertainment. And I realized that among the big four sports in the U.S., baseball, uh, football, basketball, hockey, all of them have an international component, right? You you can't talk about baseball without realizing, yeah, there's some Cold War issue with Cuba and the popularity of baseball in Cuba, Uh, basketball and the internationalization of the NBA in recent decades, Um, American football trying to spread internationally, although not a lot of international politics stories involving that. Hockey stands out because hockey is all about international politics. And time and time again, there is some something that's happening in the non-sports world that intersects with the hockey world. And I, you being an expert on politics and sport, tell me if, if that observation is wrong or if there's something to it.
0: I think that's completely right. And uh, the funny thing is I, I got into noticing the hockey component of all of this, the importance of hockey in world politics uh, kind of through the back door. I mean, initially, I was looking at, you know, all the other types of sports, uh, the sports that are, you know, the ones you just talked about that are very popular in the United States, uh, the typical Summer Olympic types. Uh, But as I started studying more and more the link between politics and sport, it became actually unavoidable what a link there was between hockey and global politics. And, and I think the reason for it is actually very straightforward. I mean, you, you listed off the big four in the United States. Well, for the most part, only three of, three of those are particularly United States of America sports, uh, at least up until 1992 Uh, Since 1992 uh, and the dream team in the 1992 Olympics, uh, uh, basketball has become a real global phenomenon and Mm -hmm. other countries have only become really competitive, you know, since then or more recently, actually. But hockey for years and years and years, it is the major team sport played by most of the NATO and Warsaw Pact countries, including the United States. So you had soccer, which is huge in the rest of the world, but the United States pays so much less attention to it, particularly on the men's side. Um, But also, you know, the rest of the world wasn't terribly competitive in baseball, American football, basketball, but hockey was something everybody played. And at least in the uh, the North, you know, in the NATO and Warsaw Pact countries. And uh, it was also from very early on, really, really important to the Soviet Union. So, therefore, you know, it got wrapped up in Cold War politics. So, as a result, you end up seeing all sorts of major world political events getting wrapped up in hockey. And so, it makes it the perfect area to look at the link between politics and sports.
1: I was amazed recently at one micro lesson in this, which is that. I've been talking to and have have some friends in Finland and Sweden and and other areas, and obviously in the last year, conversations are uh, largely about issues involving Ukraine and how it changes the European security landscape and politics within these countries as it relates to interest in joining NATO and things like this. And what I found is some Swedish and Finnish political commentators, and more specifically, security experts, are almost in lockstep when it comes to analysis of these things and, and talking in a way that almost sounds like speaking with one voice about the importance of preferably joining NATO together, although that didn't happen, and the analysis of what it takes in Ukraine, uh, until Sweden and Finland played each other in hockey. And then suddenly I'm seeing people uh, go after each other, not not violently, but in a polite way, yet still aggressive when it comes to Sweden and Finland on the ice. And that was really interesting to me. It was beyond just the playful elbowing that you might see if, you know, the United States played any random country in the World Cup. I mean, it was all in. It was a whole country coming together about this game between Sweden and Finland. And that struck me as really interesting that there can still be this very not just healthy competition but a lot of national pride going into these hockey matches
0: it is it's really fascinating it's it's actually' it's, it's also sort of lovely it's one of these areas where uh, you see sport not bleeding over into horrible feelings between countries uh but yeah that's right I mean these two these two countries have been allies for a long time in part because you know Uh, Finland was actually part of Sweden for such a long time. Uh, They've had this, you know, terrific and very special geopolitical relationship. But yes, when it comes to hockey, you've got something completely different going on here. And a lot of uh, people from Finland will openly say, you know, a large part of this is because we have sort of this big brother, little brother relationship. Um, And we don't want Big Brother to just push us around all the time. Mm-hmm. And so they—they, they, the two countries, Sweden and Finland, have had this really intense relationship on the ice for a very long time. Uh, a big part of it was Sweden really pretty consistently, uh, you know, certainly throughout the Cold War period, Sweden was the country that was the, uh, the one that was going to actually be able to compete with the really big ones like the Soviet Union and Canada. Mm-hmm. Sweden had consistently a very good team. Um, And in fact, for the story we're going to talk about today, Sweden actually plays the spoiler in a number of times uh, when playing Czechoslovakia. Finland was consistently just behind the group, you know, the big group. And so here's one example. If you look at the 1970s, Sweden was uh, pretty consistently uh, finishing in third. In the world championships or the olympics every now and then jumping up to second place all throughout the 1970s finland meanwhile was consistently fourth place fourth place fourth place fourth place consistently out of the running i think finland didn't even win a major medal in a major international play until 1988 and so it was just constantly looking at sweden as you know we why can't we beat them on the you know why can't we top them in these really really big events and so yes their their matches are incredibly intense and in fact some of the greatest hockey players in the world from each of those countries who would then go play in the nhl talked about this rivalry very respectfully but also with this intensity of we desperate to beat them and they would give it to each other so hard on the ice as you said they they got very aggressive with each other
1: well you mentioned czechoslovakia in there and i do want to Spend most of our time talking about that because you've found a way to tell a story that is both one of the most compelling uh, multi generational sports stories that I've read, uh, which is about the Holik family and others in in Czechoslovakia, um, but also is a compelling retelling of the Cold War and the Czechoslovakian experience in the Cold War. Um, as part of uh, being within the the Warsaw Pact, with all that that brought, so I want to I want to really focus on that. So let's let's set the stage a little bit on the first part though. The the origins of hockey in Czechoslovakia. Um, people who pay attention to hockey now do know that there are some absolutely remarkable players. Some of the best in the the last few decades in the NHL are from Czechoslovakia, or now from the the Czech Republic or Slovakia. Um, But hockey really wasn't a thing in Czechoslovakia as early as it was in several other countries. How did hockey develop there and take that up to the point where the Soviet Union is now, in a sense, controlling Eastern Europe? Yeah, this is
0: I mean, the story of hockey in Europe is generally quite interesting. I mean, so, so Canada gets credit for creating hockey. I mean, the, the fact is a bunch of different countries around the world were playing different forms of hockey for quite some time. Uh, Canada developed what we call Canadian-style hockey, you know, with a flat puck, five skaters on the ice, all that sort of thing. Um, Europe had a very different style for a long time that was referred to as bandy hockey. It was a ball, more players on the ice, a lot like sort of a combination between field hockey and soccer Um, And in the early 1900s, you really start seeing some European countries adopting the Canadian style of the game. And Bohemia, the the precursor to what was much of Czechoslovakia, decided to take up this new Canadian style hockey and go compete in international play. It was going to be just an intra-Europe tournament tournament. Um, and so a bunch of guys decide, you know, from Bohemia they're gonna go compete. The thing is, though, as they are on the train to go to the tournament where they're gonna play, uh they realize an important point, which is they've never actually seen the game played before. And uh as they're riding on the train, a, a Belgian gentleman actually shows them a puck for the first time. And they're really shocked by this. They had thought that the puck was square. And they when they heard flat, they assumed it meant square. Um, so that's a big surprise to them. And they get to the tournament and having never actually played this Canadian style hockey, uh, they get destroyed. They they do terribly and but they they, they think they think this sport is wonderful. And they come back and decide they're really gonna put their all into playing this sport. And they start to train more seriously, but they confront a really serious problem in Bohemia at the time, which is, it's not really an ideal uh, place for sports played on ice because the ice doesn't stay around too long because it's it's typically not cold enough for very long. So right before they're planning to go off to a tournament, all the ice melts and so they can't really practice and so they decide they're not going to go off and play. So the following year, they say, okay, we're going to get back into this. And again, the ice melts, and this time they've got a plan in place, which is they wax down wooden boards, and they practice hitting pucks off these wooden boards. It's kind of ingenious to do this sort of thing. And somehow this gambit works, and they do incredibly well in in European pre-war hockey, they become one of the best teams in the pre-war in Europe. So, okay, they seem to have this good hockey team. Czechoslovakia becomes Czechoslovakia in 1918. They continue to develop their hockey. They really are one of the best teams in Europe. And then World War II hits, and of course the the Nazis take over much of the the Czech regions of Czechoslovakia, and. Czechoslovakia has a huge advantage during this time, or rather the Czech players um, in in the lands there um, have a huge advantage in that they can't really go anywhere. They're stuck in this occupation. Now, generally, that's a horrible thing, but it's a major advantage for the players because in being stuck at home, it meant they could practice and play a lot of hockey. And it was actually a, a significant form of entertainment for people in the occupied region at the time. And the players loved it because they actually got one of the number one rewards a person could get in during Occupied World War II, uh, which was they got food for playing. You know, in, in a time that food was scarce, they got paid in food for playing their games. So as World War II ends, and well, they 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 get liberated by the Soviets. The Soviets help kick the The Germans out in May of 1945. Uh, Czechoslovakia is first of all grateful to the Soviets for helping liberate them. So there's a lot of pro Russia feeling in Czechoslovakia at that point. And their hockey team is very strong in 1945 because they've gotten to play a lot. And so, in the first World Championships in ice hockey after the war, uh, Prague hosts the tournament. And it's this incredibly exciting thing at a time where the country was having difficulty rebuilding. It was a very difficult time. Um, But they get to host these wonderful World Ice Hockey Championships. And it's... Czechoslovakia is doing quite well in the tournament, but you you, you brought up Sweden earlier and I mentioned that Sweden pl- pl- plays spoiler to Czechoslovakia quite a bit in ice hockey. Sweden beats Czechoslovakia in a major match and, in the 1947 World Championships. So it seems that all is lost for Czechoslovakia in these World Championships. Uh, the King of Sweden even sends a congratulatory telegram uh, to the Swedish team. And so... You know, the people in Czechoslovakia are very sad about this and they decide, well, you know, to to help ourselves feel better, we're going to go off and watch the opera in Prague. And they go watch the Barber of Seville. And this is being played during the final match between Sweden and Austria. Uh, Sweden still had one more match to play. And all it has to do is beat, you know, Austria was not especially good at hockey, and if Sweden beats Austria, Sweden will win the gold medal of the tournament. And partway through the Barber of Seville, which is being played during the the hockey match, a character comes out, still in character, on the stage, and sings out, Go tell the master Austria is beating Sweden! And the whole crowd goes wild. And sure enough, Sweden loses the match and Czechoslovakia wins the 1947 World Championships. And this is really important because, again, you know, Czechoslovakia wasn't a place for a lot of ice. And, and it was a country, as in much of Europe, that people loved soccer. But this incredible victory, this world championship for Czechoslovakia, made people in the country, you know, really sit up and take notice and say, you know, we're really good at this sport. And they really came to embrace it. And so Czechoslovakia became, you know, it was clear Czechoslovakia was one of the world powers at this point in the late 1940s um, in hockey. And that really made it one of the popular sports back in Czechoslovakia.
1: Okay, so it seems like at this point, you've got two things going on, right? You've got the the popularity of the sport. Now you have a, a rallying point because they've had success internationally. Um, you've got a lot of people in the country, you know, happy with the Soviets because they certainly didn't like the Nazi occupation, as it were. Um, but there's still some discontent, and especially with some individuals who were suddenly you know, business owners finding themselves without a business because they had some run-ins with the new communist system. Um, you tell this story through the uh, Holick family, as I recall, right? So tell, tell us the experience um, that they had during the early Soviet years and how that kind of pushed them into hockey and international success.
0: That's exactly right. So in 1948, there is a Soviet-backed communist coup in Czechoslovakia, so the communists steal power. They, you know, they had won an election uh, previously in one thousand, nine hundred and forty-six, but now in one thousand, nine hundred and forty-eight, they steal the rest of the power. You know, with threats of terrible things they were going to do and possibly bring in the Soviet troops in order to push things. And so, with the no, new uh, communist government, things in Czechoslovakia get terrifying. Uh, there, there are you know people cannot speak freely. They will get arrested if they say anything bad about the government. Uh, they, in fact, bring people up on false charges and execute people um, that they deem to be a threat. They, they actually want to terrify the public into doing whatever the government wants. And they take away private property. They take away businesses. At first, it's just the big businesses, but then they break it down even to the small, very you know teeny level. And the central family in my story is a family called the Holiks or the, the Holik family, and the Holiks had a butcher shop. This butcher shop was the center of their world, and the communists took away the Holik butcher shop. And this was, a—I mean, naturally, this was devastating. I mean, this was happening to people all over the country who had their private property, their, their personal businesses taken away from them. But there was one big advantage to it, which is previously when you've got your family business, you throw everything into making that business thrive. You have your kids come in and work in the business, anything to make sure that business thrives. Well, now there's no point to having the kids come in and work for you. I mean, you're just, you're you're just, you're earning a paycheck doing whatever the government wants you to do, essentially. So don't have the kids come in and work, help the kids thrive in some way. Well, the biggest way to succeed in communist society was to become a member of the Communist Party. That wasn't going to happen with the whole leagues. They weren't going to join the Communist Party. They hated the Communist Party for what it had done to them. So the father, the butcher, sat there and said, there's another way of becoming a significant person in a communist country like ours, and that is to become a great athlete. And he decided he was going to train his kids to be great. Hockey players, and he would get them up befo- long before the sun would rise during the winter to make sure they could get to the ice before it melted. And he trained them to be great.
1: So it becomes almost political from the beginning, right? It's it's an o- it's an option of playing the system against itself, so that the the kids don't have to go through that. Um, no surprise; these kids end up growing up and becoming some of the best players in Czechoslovakia and. We won't walk through all the stories um, that are in your book about them growing up, but that's just a remarkable personal story. Um, But we get to the point in 1968 where Czechoslovakia experiences in a different way what Hungary did in 1956, which is um, attempts to break free even just a little bit politically from the Soviet sphere, do things a little bit differently, and the Soviets don't like it. So for the people who haven't studied that in their Cold War history class, first tell the brief story of Alexander Dubček and the Prague Spring, and then talk about how hockey played into that uh, during the actual crisis and its immediate aftermath.
0: Yeah, and, and just to give a tiny bit of uh, background on, on the whole Leek family, I mean, there were two brothers, as we said before. Uh, there's Yaroslav, the older brother, who was a wild man. He was completely he, he fought anybody. He was constantly getting into arguments and actual fistbites. He would fight with anybody on his team. Any, he did not care who you were. He would fight you. Uh, his younger brother, Yuzhi, was exactly the opposite. He was just cheerful, happy-go-lucky. But Yuzhi was also the, perhaps the greatest skater of any hockey player in the world and actually made his first Olympic team for Czechoslovakia in hockey when he was just 19. And the two of them had a best friend, Jan Suki, uh, who grew up in their same small town. So so w- one of the things that's wonderful about this story is these three boys, uh, the two Holiks, Yaroslav and Yuji, and then their best friend, Jan Suki, they all grew up in this town of ten to 15,000 people, and they became stars on the national hockey team. So in other words, what you have is these small-town boys fighting for this small country against the behemoths of the hockey world. So that's a a really stunning piece of the whole story. So by 1968, these three are huge. They are national heroes for the national hockey team. People all around the country knew knew who they were. And in 1968, as they were off in West Germany at a tournament... The Soviets invaded, and the reason the Soviets had invaded was in 1968. Remember, we had talked about the repressive uh, Czechoslovak communist government, but in 1968, a man Alexander Dubcek comes in and becomes the new leader, and he pushes what becomes known as socialism with a human face. It wasn't; they weren't pushing away communism. What they were actually saying is. Uh, we're trying to reach a higher form of it, where we treat people without the same controls. Uh, We continue to have communism because they very much believe that communism was a kinder, gentler way of, of treating people. It was a way of creating equality in their view. And at the same time, though, allowing greater freedom of speech, allowing people to leave the country. Nobody had been allowed to leave the country, or at least regular people weren't allowed to leave the country before and a greater openness. And they never talked about saying we would leave the Soviet bloc. Well, the Soviets didn't believe any of this. The Soviets believed that Czechoslovakia was essentially stepping outside of the arrangements of the Warsaw Pact. And the Soviets were terrified that this was going to lead to an unraveling of their system. So starting late in the evening, August 20th, 1968, the Soviets lead a group of five countries all together that invade Czechoslovakia. And it's not just, you know, a little a little invasion. This is half a million troops enter the country, thousands of tanks. So people in Czechoslovakia wake up on August 21st with tanks in the streets and utterly devastated about, you know, what are we supposed to do here? And you know, with half a million troops, it's not like Czechoslovakia, the people of Czechoslovakia could really fight back. There's overwhelming firepower on the other side. Uh, it, It didn't help the Czechoslovak side that all the Warsaw Pact troops of each country were actually made part of the Warsaw Pact troop framework. So in essence, the Soviet leaders had just as much a direct line to the Czechoslovak troops as, you know, the Czechoslovak leaders did. So incredibly difficult to fight back in any way. So at a certain point, the people of Czechoslovakia feel like we have no way to fight back. This is not, you know, these are not a troops we can fight back against. And it also quickly becomes clear that as the Soviets, you know, impose their will in Czechoslovakia, All the freedoms that the people of Czechoslovakia had started getting with the Prague Spring in 1968, all these freedoms are very quickly disappearing. And it becomes this sense of, are we going to lose everything? And and a huge part of Czechoslovak culture, when it came to a sense of freedom, was when Czechoslovakia, actually, I I do want to go back to something, if if I can, um, a piece that we didn't talk about, which is, Back in 1950, when Czechoslovakia was at the top of the, you know, was at the top of the hockey world internationally, the Czechoslovak communist government imprisoned the national team. They feared that the Czechoslovak national team was going to defect. And at first, it seemed like it wasn't going to be a big deal, that they were just going to give them a slap on the wrist. But before long, it becomes serious imprisonment. Where in fact uh, two of the players were sentenced to fifteen years in the uranium mines. Well, you can imagine, as all uh, after all this, this hurts Czechoslovak hockey as well as you know general morale.
1: And this hit the real tension that I recall from our earlier conversation, especially in the the Soviet bloc. The Russians were were famous for this, but the idea that you know you you had if you were going to compete internationally you You had to win, you couldn't appear weak internationally, well, the Czech government may or the Czechoslovakian government at the time may have felt that you know this was some kind of a threat if this team defects and that's bad. on the other hand, aren't they kind of hurting their own hockey? <laughs> Their own hockey legacy and uh, making it tough for them to win internationally for the next few years.
0: Czech, the Czechoslovak government made a clear decision that it was willing to undercut its success in sports and its own, you know, propaganda in terms yeah. of you know the greatness of the country for the purpose of trying to instill terror in society. And this was something that it shouldn't have been surprising that Czechoslovakia's government would do this. I mean, for one thing, they became slavishly devoted to the Soviet Union, constantly talking about how great the Soviets were. Uh, But in fact, when I talked about earlier, there were political witch trials in Czechoslovakia. The government actually put to death the second most powerful figure in Czechoslovakia, completely making up that he had actually been plotting against the government. So they were more than willing to undercut powerful figures in order to demonstrate their devotion to the Soviet Union and to instill terror in society. That's absolutely right. But so, okay, going back to the hockey part, so Czechoslovakia becomes, you know, sharply weakened as a result of, you know, imprisoning the entire team. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union over the early 1950s becomes really good at ice hockey. And so there becomes this sense, and in fact, 1954, the first year that Soviet Union plays in a major international tournament, the World Championships, the Soviet Union wins the tournament, wins the gold medal of the tournament. And then in 1956, wins the gold medal in the Olympics. And so the Soviet Union is quickly becoming really good at hockey. By 1963, the Soviet Union is the clear dominant international hockey force. So people in Czechoslovakia, I did lots of interviews with people in in the Czech Republic and Slovakia now. And I would just bring up, oh, I'm writing a book on on hockey in Czechoslovakia. And people always had opinions about this. And I had heard that what I'm gonna say is true, but I actually also ran into people who who said they believed this very thing. People in Czechoslovakia believed that they were not allowed to defeat the Soviets.
1: What do you mean by that? They weren't they weren't allowed to defeat that the Czechs were good enough they could, but they basically played to lose. Many people in Czechoslovakia, including many of the
0: players um, who had been imprisoned, believed that the team in 1950 had been imprisoned because the Soviets wanted to become better than Czechoslovakia at hockey. And then that once they reconstituted their team, that Czechoslovak teams were intentionally losing to the Soviets. This is something that the people believe. Now, I also spoke to hockey players who were devastated by this idea. I still remember one interview I did with one of the great hockey players who I, I didn't bring up this idea at all. He brought it up. He said, the people thought we were losing on purpose. And he had tears in his eyes as he looked at me, speaking to me terribly seriously and saying, we never would have intentionally lost. We never would have done that. But as one taxi driver said to me oh yeah they were intentionally they were intentionally losing cuz they were forced to okay so coming back to the soviet invasion of 1968 people in 1968 in czechoslovakia thought oh we're finally getting our freedoms and then the soviet union comes in and takes those freedoms away so people then are wondering how how far does this go? Do we go back to having to lose in sports as well? We don't even have the freedom to win in sports. And so it just happened to be that exactly seven months after the invasion, the 1968 invasion, we had the 1969 World Championships where Czechoslovakia would play the Soviet Union. And so I talked about, you know... This is a chance for revenge. This is a big part of what people in Czechoslovakia felt. They couldn't get revenge any other way, but they could do it if they could somehow fight back on the ice. And so, I one of the great joys of writing this book was I spoke to uh, Czechoslova- Czechoslovakia born. Uh, Now, uh, I think she's both U.S. and uh, Czech citizen, Martina Navratilova. So Martina Navratilova, the great tennis player, had been born in Czechoslovakia. She eventually defected to the United States. But she was a kid and remembered throwing rocks and, uh, you know, an apple at a Soviet tank at the time of the invasion. But she also she played um, hockey as a kid. And I asked her specifically about her memories of the matches against the Soviets in 1969. And remember, this is a, a country that wants revenge, and they also feel like every freedom is being taken away. And she said to me, the hockey games went beyond sports. They gave people hope, and the outcome of those matches would let us know if we still had the freedom to win. So that's where I get the title for my book is wow. from Martina Novotilova talking about just how important these matches were. But,
1: but there's a real tension there, based on what you mentioned earlier about 1950. So if you're the if you're the Czechoslovakian government and the Soviet Union has just made clear with 50,000 troops and thousands of tanks, five
0: hundred thousand troops.
1: I'm sorry, five, I'm sorry, five hundred thousand yeah. yeah. troops and and the tanks and I mean. People died in this in this invasion and the, the days afterwards, and there was repression. Um, if you're the Czechoslovakian government, why are you letting the Czech hockey team go and play knowing they will probably play against the Soviet team? you're You're probably not going to win if you're the the Czechoslovakian leaders who have been allowed to continue in place by the the Soviet leadership. Um, Describe that dynamic and how these hockey players, found a way to still go and play, even though many of them were personally opposed to what had happened.
0: Yeah, this is such a tricky dynamic at the time, too, because uh, Alexander Dubček was still in power at this point. I mean, this is a really important piece to the whole story, is once the hockey players go off to Stockholm, Sweden for this tournament in March 1969, Dubček is still in power. But now the Soviets have... Essentially forced hardliners in, so Dubcek has lost a lot of, you know, his. his, He didn't have very much independence at this point. Um, He was surrounded by people who were increasingly very much uh, towing the Soviet line. Dubček himself was uh, speaking still about trying to maintain tr- try to recreate the freedoms for the people. So he was speaking about this and in fact at one point he spoke about this this hockey tournament and the matches against the Soviets as a replay of a lost war. So in essence he was talking about this as you know a chance for still we might find a way to, to fight back against the Soviets. But yeah, the, the, he on the other side, you had people who didn't want the they were happy with the Czechoslovak players playing the Soviets, but just don't push too hard. So the Czechoslovak players were preparing to go off to play in the tournament, and a number of them didn't even actually want to play the hockey matches for real. A number of them actually talked about, we just want to get on the ice. Once we get on the ice against the Soviets, We just want to start fighting them. This was actually a thought that they had. Um, The the coach of the team or one of the coaches of the team brought in a great sports psychologist who said, who talked to the men and said, wouldn't it be more effective if you could just, I don't know, beat them in, you know, fair and square on the ice, defeat them. Yes. But don't beat them about the face. So there, there was that piece. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that calmed down the players, you know, you know, at least away from just fighting, is as they walked around Czechoslovakia, just walking down the street, or, or they went to meet and greets with fans for the team, mm-hmm. and you had regular Czech and Slovak citizens sitting there screaming to the players, we don't care what else you do in the tournament. You could finish in last place for all we care but just beat the Russians. They referred to them as the Russians. Just beat the Russians. And so the players were really fixated on, this this is something we're doing for our people. This is so important that we give them some sort of hope. And one thing they thought about doing, they get on the bus to go off to the airport, and they had all secretly signed a document One of the big things that happens at the end of international hockey matches, at the end of each match, they play the national anthem of the winning team, and then every player on each team has to shake hands with everybody on the other team. That is protocol. It's very strictly followed. And the players had signed a document that said, we will not shake hands with them. And they, they passed this off to the bureaucrats right as they're getting, you know, about to go off to the airport and the bureaucrats lose it. They are terrified. No, 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 you can't do that. You have to shake hands. They go run off to call all their superiors. This goes on for two hours. Finally, they come back and say, just just don't do anything too bad. And the players go off with a plan to really stick it to the zone. Because at that
1: point, I can just imagine the alternative scenario there is they say, you know, okay, we're going to go and play. We're we're not going to defect. You know, we're going to do it. We're just not going to shake hands. And yeah, that's bad and the Soviets won't like it. But really, compared to what they could be doing, if they they have to pull the team at the last minute from the world championships and say, sorry, we can't bring our team because word will get out because they're opposed to this. That's a much worse scenario than a few missed handshakes.
0: It really is. I mean, people in Czechoslovakia were already... I mean, people were on edge. Uh, They were certainly on edge. And this was going to create greater instability if you didn't Mm -hmm. have the team going off to do the one thing the country could do to fight back. Also, the Soviets were... We're starting to go into damage control in terms of you know, uh, propaganda, you right. know, PR. They, the last thing they want is to give some sort of impression that they're not permitting Czechoslovakia to go off and play in this tournament. And one thing that's really important, too, it already looked bad because Prague had been the, the city that was supposed to host this tournament. And the organizers at the last Czechoslovakia had said, you know what, we're not going to host it here because this will go really poorly. (laughs) People Mm -hmm. are going to really freak out in the streets. So why don't we have hold it someplace else?
1: And one one other element, if if memory serves, uh, Brezhnev was the Soviet leader at the time. Right. During during 1968 and obviously for quite a few years afterwards. But wasn't Brezhnev a huge hockey fan?
0: Brezhnev was a massive hockey fan. He, um, he was putting incredible pressure on, his, on the Soviet team to win. And one of the things that people have learned over the years, not only did he meddle in Soviet league play, uh, rather, you know, he, he attended all the big matches. He meddled with the league just generally. Um, apparently, as he gradually experienced dementia in his, in his later years and was you know, quite ill a lot of what he was doing was just focusing on hockey. Hockey just became one of the, the few things he would really keep his mind on during wow. his final years. Wow. So yes, uh, in, Brezhnev had been the leader of the Soviet Union in 68, had ordered the invasion, mm-hmm. and Brezhnev did not want things messing around with the hockey world because that could ju- do all sorts of damage.
1: And yet things were, were about to get messy. So tell us exactly. the story of the 1969 World Championship and, and what happened when they were there and got to play the Soviets.
0: So there were, um, one of the things about 1969 is it was a year in which, a tournament in which every team played every other team twice. So that meant Czechoslovakia was going to get two bites at this apple. And the Soviet Union was without question the best uh, national hockey team in the world. Uh, The Soviet Union had won every world championship and every Olympic Games since 1963. So they were a completely dominant team in hockey. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which... Yeah.
1: And one thing to to point out at this point, if I get my history of hockey right, this is before the the early waves of European players playing in the NHL. Um, we'll get to later on talk about defections and yeah. things, but but then the opening up and the ability to the point now where you have team after team, uh, including one of the teams in the recent Stanley Cup Finals, who had a a you know has a captain you know from Finland. Um, you have all these European players in the league now, but nineteen sixty nine. You've still got a Soviet team where all of the best players are basically professionals, often on military teams, and it is the best of the best. They have not been, in a sense, deluded by going overseas and not coming back for championships like this, right?
0: That's completely right. I mean, the NHL uh, back in 1970 was almost, I mean, just short of 100% Canadian. There were almost no uh, players from the United States even then there certainly were almost no players from Europe. Uh, That was something that didn't happen until uh, a number of years after um, this 1969 championship. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union put the resources of the state behind its hockey team. It trained literally millions of children from a young age to play the Soviet style of hockey. So a big thing uh, the Soviet Union had done is created essentially what was a new style of hockey that was much more like soccer. The, the Canadian style was much more of a vertical game where you knock the puck you know, straight down the ice and people go chase it and try to score there. The Soviets were based much more on a lot, a lot, a lot of crisscrossing, weaving, passing, uh, and had created this beautiful game in which they were wildly successful. And also, yes, they, uh, the Soviet Union and the uh, Czechoslovakia players were professionals. They were paid to play hockey. A lot of them were, in the Soviet Union in particular, they were playing for the military teams. Uh, In Czechoslovakia, they played for a variety of different teams. Uh, My main characters, Yaroslav and Yiji Holik and Jan Suki, actually played for the army team in Czechoslovakia. Um, But in both of these countries, yes, they were professionals, uh, which was a big disadvantage when Uh, countries like Canada and the United States would try and send players over. They couldn't really send their professionals over uh, because they weren't trying to hide the fact that they were professionals. Um, So this was a big disadvantage for Canada and the U.S., and it meant the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia by this point were the clear top two teams in international hockey. And in fact, actually, I, I should add this about the Soviet Union. A few years later, the Soviet Union would send its best players to go play against the best players from Canada. So this is in 1972. There's something called the Summit Series, and that was... Well, one uh, one Canadian hockey player referred to the Summit Series in 1972, Canadians versus Soviet Union, it's our way of life against theirs. So there's this real sense of when you play the Soviets in international hockey, this has real geopolitical implications. Right. So the Soviets were great. And in this Summit Series in 1972, the Soviets essentially played dead even with the Canadian All-Stars. Um, it was the, the Canadians won four games, lost three, and there was one tie. And the, the, so, and the Canadians only won the final match with 34 seconds left to play. So these two teams, you know, the Soviets were great and they were on par with the All-Stars in Canada. So that's the team, though, that Czechoslovakia was facing in the 1969 World Championships. The mm-hmm. Soviets were great.
1: So if nothing else... Um, And of course, we've just talked about the fact that there is much else. But if nothing else, it's a classic underdog story because the Czech team, as good as they were, were not seen as the equals of the Soviet team. So if nothing else, you've got the David versus Goliath element.
0: This is a David and Goliath story. It uh, this is the Soviets were the overwhelming favorites in terms of the team most likely to win. But meanwhile, in Sweden and all around the world, in terms of the, the team everyone was rooting for, that was Czechoslovakia. Everyone wanted Czechoslovakia to win these matches. And that was one of the things that was truly extraordinary about these matches. In general, international hockey, if you, if you watch a world championship, uh, the, the fans root wildly, of course, for the home team. But they're much more muted, uh, much more you know, restrained when it comes to games that involve other teams. Not in this tournament, not when the Soviets were playing and not when Czechoslovakia was playing, when the Soviets played. So one thing that uh, occurs in, in Europe is it rather than boo, they whistle. Uh, That's how you show your derision in in European sports. And so uh, the the mostly Swedish crowd would jeer and whistle when the Soviets would come on the ice. Meanwhile, Czechoslovakia would take to the ice and they would cheer madly for the Czechoslovak players. And this was at a completely different level when Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union were playing each other in this tournament. The fans, it was as if it was a match played in Prague. And in fact, it was as if the Swedes were channeling the air from Prague, where people were they they, uh, the fans were going wild for the Czechoslovak players. And so when when the two teams uh, actually started playing, the Czechoslovak players were hitting the Soviets constantly in a way that is not normal for international hockey. International hockey is is fairly uh, violence free. Uh, but uh, the Soviets got really kind of freaked out by how hard the Czechoslovak players were hitting them. Um, one of the big things that the, the fans did to really show just how much they were supporting the players from Czechoslovakia. In both matches, at one point, as uh, time ticked away, they started chanting the name Dubček over and over. This is, again, this is in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. They start chanting Dubček check doob check in support of Czechoslovakia's leader wow. so extraordinary stuff uh, when the players came out to the ice they looked around the stands and these you know the players are more pumped up the Czechoslovak players are more pumped up than they've ever been for you know anything in their lives hmm. they see all these signs in the stands written mostly in Czech um, saying a variety of things to pump them up and to show that they have, you know, that they're supporting them. The one that always kind of gives me the chills and nearly became the title uh, for my book until Martina nicely gave me uh freedom to win. There's one sign that a young man held up saying, you send tanks, we bring goals.
1: <laughs> That's perfect.
0: It's so wonderful. That's perfect. Um, yes. Uh, So in the first match, things were incredibly tight. And in fact, midway through the second period, this just gives a sense of how intense the match was. As the score is tied at zero, Czechoslovakia, one of my three small town boys, Jan Sukhi, scores the first goal of the match. And rather than, you know, simply jump up and down and be thrilled... The Czechoslovak players, and and people, by the way, can watch this on YouTube. You can watch this match on YouTube. It's an extraordinary moment where the Czechoslovak players celebrate in a way I've never seen in any sport, in any event, where first one of the stars of the team of Czechoslovakia goes to the right side of the net and lifts the net off its moorings. Then Yaroslav Holik, my main character, the older brother, takes his stick and places it just inches away from the Soviet goalie's face and screams, you bleeping commie, (laughs) then takes the stick and starts smacking the net over and over and then lifts off the left side of the net and tosses it towards the boards. Mm -hmm. This is how intense the whole thing is as the crowd is screaming wildly. So this is the kind of play that it is. The matches in this story Are as thrilling as any I've ever encountered in any sport at any time.
1: So Sushi scores the first goal. How did the match end? And then this is still the first match, right?
0: This is still the first match. The match ends uh, with Czechoslovakia uh, winning two to nothing. And as I said before, there's the Dubcek chant. Uh, The players are just you as you watch them. Um, listen to the national anthem of Czechoslovakia. This is one of the things I find really fascinating in this whole story, too, is this um, kind of split between support for the government and support for the country. There's intense patriotism here, but without intense support for the government. So these people are so angry with what the communists have done. But at the same time, they're, they're intensely proud of being from Czechoslovakia. And so the national anthem plays, and they sing just passionately as their flag is raised. They're so proud of this flag. And then as soon as the anthem is over, they sprint off the ice. They are not going to shake hands with <laughs> the Soviets. It's an incredible moment. Wow. And, and In fact, as they skate off the ice, what the Czechoslovak players don't see is there's one Soviet player trailing behind them who is flipping his hand underneath his chin as Mm. if to say, screw you to Mm -hmm. them. So clearly the Soviet players got a sense that, you know, there was big stuff going on here.
1: That's got to be pretty stunning politically then because not only did they defeat the team, which could be seen as just sports, but they did it in a way that was rough. They didn't do the handshake. There was the obvious political support from the crowd for the Czechs, it is possible, again, in another alternate world, that the authorities would have said, you know what, we'll come up with an excuse and this team can't play the Soviets again. Number one, the Soviets don't want to be defeated by the Czechs at all, much less twice. Secondly, if they had this humiliating, for us, uh, political support from the world, what would happen in a second match? But they do let them play the second match, right?
0: That's exactly right. And the um, the rumors around Stockholm, they, they, they're going to play the second match. The rumors around Stockholm is that Brezhnev and the government are pushing the Soviet players even harder now. The Soviet players mm. had been surprised by the level of hatred yeah. by the Czechoslovak players. They were shocked by the the actions of the crowd they couldn't believe it. i mean the you know swedes are yeah. famously neutral <laughs> and that uh that the swedish fans would be going at them so hard was shocking so they uh, the soviet players now had a chance to kind of shake this out yeah. they had a chance to say okay that that was that was that game we can get it back together they went back to their hotel where there were um all these statements uh, you know, basically there, there was literally billboard material. There, there were, there were things, you know, taped up on the walls talking about the importance of communism and wow. how these players were you know, working on behalf of communism and how they were working on behalf of the Soviet union. And they were getting lots of pressure to do this correctly. This time, you must win this on the flip side. The Czechoslovak players were even more intent upon defeating the Soviets this time, you know, or was one more time. They were getting telegrams from people, hundreds and hundreds of telegrams from people back in Czechoslovakia. You've got to beat them again. What you've done is so important for us. But the Czechoslovak players also say, this time a handshake. Uh, withholding a handshake is not enough. We need to do more. And sure enough, my main character, Yaroslav Holik, the older brother, who is this firebrand who is constantly looking to do and say things to push the buttons of those he's opposed to, is part of a group that decides that they're going to go a little bit farther this time. And what they do is they decide to mess with their jerseys. Uh, Czechoslovakia's jerseys at the time had the Czechoslovak coat of arms on the jerseys. And so uh, they have a lion on the jerseys, which represents the Czech part of the country. They got something else to represent the Slovak part of the country, but they have on the very top of the jerseys a star. They didn't used to have that before there was communism in Czechoslovakia, but now they've got this communist star, part of the coat of arms and support for communism in the country. And Jaroslav Holik and a few of his teammates go get black electrician tape and tape over this communist star. And by the way, wow. this was the sort of thing that could land you in prison.
1: No kidding. No kidding. And,
0: and so they decide they are going to take to the ice with this tape on their jerseys. In other words, they are going to make a very public statement to the Soviet Union, to the communists, that your system is dead to us.
1: Okay. So that raises now now two cliffhangers for us. Um, First, what happened in the second match, um, and then what happened because of this very overt act of opposition by covering up the communist star?
0: So at the time, nothing. And one of the things was it was difficult to see on TV. It was extremely difficult to see uh, this black tape on the star. People back home really couldn't tell, but word spread quickly. And in fact, uh, sure enough, when uh, Yaroslav Holik's wife, Marie, learned of it, this is something Marie told me. She said, oh, when I heard about that, I said, oh, of course my husband led us in doing that because (laughs) he was such a firebrand. At first, nothing happened to the players because of the tape on the jerseys. Uh, but before long, uh, word got around and Yaroslav Holik ultimately got suspended from the team, from the national team, not from his army team, but from the national team for some time because of this. And in fact, one of the the real tidbits I dug up in my research, and by the way, I always have to make a big shout out here. I have a wonderful research assistant, Pavel Bachovsky, hmm. who is a uh, visiting professor at Bates College who is both a huge hockey fan and um, and is Czech. And he uh, did all the work in Czech and Slovak uh, for me, which is just amazing. And one of the things he helped me get was the secret police file for Jaroslav Holik that talks mm. about... Uh, him taping over the star and therefore getting suspended from the national team because he taped over the star and one of the things I loved about this is oh. when you are under um, investigation by the secret police in Czechoslovakia, they give you a code name and this was his co- this was yaroslav holik's code name it was actually this was written in english the English word his code name was rebel, and it rebel. says it in big block capital letters on his file which i've seen it you says rebel
1: it's amazing
0: it's fantastic
1: it wasn't public at the time though that he was you know an enemy of the state in the secret police paperwork he merely couldn't play on the national team but but you found out through the research that in fact he he was in that very special group of people, they were watching very, very closely.
0: He was being watched very closely. I mean, he was never told officially he was off the team because of the tape. People yeah. gave, you know, kind of gave him the runaround, and you know, gave made-up stories about how he wasn't playing so well mm-hmm. anymore, and, and it all it it was all preposterous. Right, uh, but. Uh, it was, and in fact, he didn't see his secret police file, so it was only one of these things that I came across, you know, recently. But the secret police file not only did it call him rebel, say he was off the team because of the um, because of him taping over the star, but he was placed in what it actually the the secret police report says: we recommend you place this report under the hidden enemies folder. Oof. <laughs> and so um, he was clearly being watched because of his actions here and because he was generally very outspokenly anti-communist and he wouldn't hold his tongue.
1: Okay. So you answered that cliffhanger. Go back to the first. <laughs> what happened What happened in the second match at these 1969 world championships?
0: This match was an extraordinary match. I mean, you, you've you got all the energy. You've got the men taping over the stars. You've got the Swedish crowd overwhelmingly rooting for Czechoslovakia and uh, but you also have the Soviets back in it now. They, they've got their heads together. In the first game, they hadn't played especially well because they'd actually appeared kind of frightened a little bit, you know, just off their game. Now they're playing brilliantly again. So both teams are playing incredible hockey against one another. Uh, Czechoslovakia quickly takes a, you know, a lead, but then going into the, the third and final period, it's tied up. It's, you know, we get to this incredible... A series of, you know, attempts by each side to score. And Czechoslovakia ends up winning four to three as the Soviet Union is desperately trying to make a comeback to win. And yet again, the crowd is chanting, Dubček, Dubček, Dubček. The players are, you know, overwhelmed with emotion. And in the stands, you've got uh, the Czechoslovak, the che- Czech and Slovak journalists are even crying at what has just unfolded. As the national anthem of Czechoslovakia is playing, you've got people with tears streaming down their faces, singing passionately as they never have before. Uh, the Czechoslovak players again leave the ice without shaking the hands of the Soviet players. And... One thing I left out before: the feed gets cut from both games, so that the people back in Czechoslovakia never see the withholding of the handshake. Now it's, oh, it's unclear okay. if this was done okay. on purpose or not, right. but it certainly happened that it was cut. Mm-hmm. We don't know quite why. If that was just the end of the if the game was over, or it was being done on purpose, yeah. and. One of the announcers, one of the Czechoslovak announcers, you know, talks about, go, you know, celebrate. This is wonderful. And as the feed gets sent back to the newscasters uh, in Czechoslovakia, one uh, news anchor says, I toast this victory, uh, you know, with wine. Usually I just drink tea, but I toast this with wine. And as a result, both of these people, both of these journalists end up getting in big trouble and end up getting fired. Uh, for, you know, it's perfectly innocuous, huh. but they end up getting fired for reasons having to do with the events that follow these matches. So I don't know if you want to go there na- now or yeah, you want I mean, to talk more about the matches.
1: Yeah, there's no, I mean, the matches definitely sound like they were, they were intense and uh, the, the team was channeling all of this pent up aggression from the people, right? Getting revenge right. on the ice because the people can't stand up against half a million troops and, and tanks. Um What's interesting to me is the the effects of this. There's there's the, the short term and the long term. Yeah. Which, which are both inspirational, like people celebrating on the streets because they can celebrate this. Of course, you can celebrate hockey, even though there's the subtext of the, the political situation. But in between, there's a really dark period because the, the medium term is, yeah, the journalists lose their jobs. Some of these hockey players um, are kept away from the game they love at the level they love because of the stance they took. But it sets the seeds for 20 years later. So many people that, that you talk to during the Velvet Revolution time when the Soviet Union did collapse and communism was rolled back in Eastern Europe, so many people in Czechoslovakia cite this as kind of the flame they held onto. So that's right. Got this really interesting short term feels really good, medium term, but it actually doesn't change things for well over a decade. And then, in the end, it actually was inspirational for people who made the, the ultimate change in the government. I, that, that's that's
0: exactly right. And actually, I, I want to talk about this short term for a sec too. That points to just how important this all is. So there's this short term jubilation. There's incredible feeling back in Czechoslovakia. So uh, one thing I hadn't pointed out earlier: when half a million troops invaded, this is half a million troops in a, a country coming to a country that only has about 14 million people. So, the number of troops per citizen uh it's i mean there's no way Czechoslovakia can fight back against that, so it's a very small country, so you've got these i mean we had ninety three percent of households with televisions having their televisions on during these matches i as I said earlier, I spoke to all sorts of people about you know their experience during this time. I spoke to one woman who um, had been uh, in her early 20s at the time of the games. And she said, oh, what's your book about? And I said, well, it's about hockey in Czechoslovakia. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I have no interest in hockey. And I said, that's all right. Just tell me about your life. Um, What do you remember about 1969? And she goes, oh, that was the year we fought the Russians on the ice. We were, those were such incredible games. (laughs) Did you watch them? Oh, yes, I watched both of them. Well, she and half a million people, by the way, this woman I spoke to was eight and a half months pregnant um, when these games unfolded, and she and half a million other people took to the streets after, these, after the second victory. They held up signs that listed the scores of the matches, but in fact, one person carried a sign that said, just shows how political it is. This person's sign said, dupchek 4, Brezhnev 3. This was, you know, this was a political thing. It was fantastic. Um, But very soon, the celebration of half a million people turned into riots. Tens of thousands of people started to riot. The big thing was the riots in particular occurred anywhere that there were soviet barracks and there were a lot of places with soviet barracks in the country so this is in the this is in the immediate hours after the second match march 28 1969 so people regular people were going to soviet barracks and throwing bricks uh, lighting things on fire throwing them at the at the uh, military houses all sorts of things like this, but the biggest one was in Prague. So the, the big Prague meeting place is Wenceslas Square. And in Wenceslas Square uh, was the Soviet airline Aeroflot's office. And thousands of people come and destroy the Aeroflot office. Uh, they're creating a huge bonfire of all the things that had been inside, including pictures of Lenin um, that they they burned in this huge bonfire. Well, some people think that this was actually a false flag operation, that the secret police had put this together to make it look like the people in Czechoslovakia were out of control. I haven't seen really good evidence for this, uh, but it could be true. I just haven't seen great evidence for it. But as a result of this rioting, then people referred to it as the hockey riots, the Soviet Union decided from this point on Czechoslovakia doesn't get any kind of freedom anymore, and so they very quickly, within uh, two and a half weeks, mm-hmm. fired Dubcek. Mm-hmm. They got and very quickly, so Dubcek lost power. Yep. Only hardliners in control, mm-hmm. and that's when they started firing journalists, and they started creating a more a rigid system. And that's when you started, over time, seeing lots and lots of people being purged from the Communist Party roles and you start seeing hockey players like Yaroslav Holik being kicked off the national team.
1: Okay, so these are the down times I mentioned, that medium period where where things got darker because of that burst. Um, But two things I I want to address that that carry it past the 1969 story. Um, One is the fact that, especially in the 70s into the 80s, you start seeing something in Czechoslovakian sports, as well as other Eastern European sports, which is the beginning of these defections where sports stars um, and you've mentioned a few already in other sports, but you've got people who either outright defect or just move to the United States and dare the authorities to to tell them to come back, whether that's a hockey player or Yvonne Lendl or others. Um, so that's one thing I want you to address how defections became kind of a tool of Cold War propaganda in many ways. Um, and then take that up to to the late 1980 s when suddenly there's that crack opening in the the Soviet system, which allows the freedom to start coming out in Czechoslovakia itself, and how these how the, how the inspiration from this experience in 1969 um, ended up affecting no kidding political affairs in the late 80 s.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much to talk about here. This is this is one of the things I, I so loved about doing the research for this book is I thought it was one story, and then there were so many wonderful stories that made you know that comprised it. Um, so I mentioned Yaroslav Holik a number of times, and he continues to be the center of the story in part because what happens in the years that follow is he starts deciding how am I going to live in this new world? Um, he loved living in Czechoslovakia. He hated the government. He thought communism was, in his words, stupid. Um, he thought the whole, uh, the whole system just made lazy people, in his words. But he loved the life he had there. Um, he was a sports star, so things were much easier for him than for a lot of people. And he was getting older. He never planned to go abroad. But he started having kids. He had his first child in um, 1968. He had a second child in 1971. And he looked at the world in front of him there and saw how difficult things were for regular people in Czechoslovakia. And he said, I am going to train my children to be sports stars. He was going to train his, if he had a daughter, he had decided he was going to have a daughter. Mm-hmm. He was going to train her to be a tennis player. Sure mm-hmm. enough, he had a daughter. He trained her to be a tennis star. He said, if I have a son, I'm going to train him to be a hockey player." He had a son. He trained him to be a hockey player. And the purpose of this partly was, you know, he he knew the world of being a sports star and he knew how much better life could be for a sports star, but he had a bigger idea. And that was he wanted to train his kids to have skills that would allow them to escape. Wow. He wanted to make it yeah. so he would have children who could easily defect to the West and have a way of supporting themselves in the West. So this was really a big part of the whole thinking that people had in Czechoslovakia was, okay, we can defect and create a better life for ourselves as the government's cracking down. So in 1974, we see the first big defection from Czechoslovakia among Mm. the hockey players at this point. I had talked earlier about one uh, hockey player in the first 1969 match against the Soviets lifting the net on Mm. the right side. Well, that was a gentleman by the name of Václav Nedomanský. Mm -hmm. otherwise known as big ned and big ned was the greatest offensive player in czechoslovakia he was incredible he was i mean he was uh, he was so handsome people loved him he was sort of like a rock star in that way and in 1974 he found a way to sneak out of the country and head to canada where he continued to be a hockey star um, and and in fact, the West—I mean, the West—delighted in this, and the Eastern Bloc was terrified of what was happening because this was a big propaganda win for the capitalist nations, especially because Big Ned, big Ned happened to show up in Canada uh, just after. Uh, Baryshnikov, the ballet dancer, had defected um, from the Eastern Bloc as well. And mm-hmm. so egg was all over the face here of the mm-hmm. Warsaw Pact. From there, you start having more people defect. You have Martina Navratilova defecting not long afterwards. Mm-hmm. And part of the, there are a couple reasons that these people wanted it to defect. One was, you know, they, they were being restricted by the, the communist government. They mm-hmm. couldn't make as much money and they were being limited in how much they could travel outside. And they were being um, told that if you do things we don't like, we're going to stop you from being able to play your sport. The, perhaps the most thrilling of these defections involved an entire family, uh, the Stosny brothers, Who were uh, from Bratislava in Slovakia. And they had become, there was a family of uh, six kids, but there were three brothers in particular who became massive hockey stars, including Peter Stosny, who became the greatest player in the country. And uh, all three of them snuck out of the country in in just thrilling fashion. Uh, It just really extraordinary how they went about doing this, including having. Uh, Austrian uh, super-duper police forces holding guns uh, to try and keep potential communist agents at bay. And so you continued to see this throughout the 1980s. Over time, there was this drip, drip, drip of whenever a young Czechoslovak felt like he could get out and create a greater life for himself playing hockey in Mm -hmm. North America. You had so many of these guys doing it.
1: And many, many people may not know Yaroslav Holik's daughter, um, although at one point she was uh, quite prominent uh, tennis player on the circuit, but they certainly will know his son if they've paid attention to to hockey. So, uh, briefly tell the story of uh, Bobby and how he came out of Czechoslovakia.
0: So uh, in- incredible! This is this really the story of Yaroslav and his children is is really stunning. I mean, this is a case of well, uh, a person decided that his children were going to be wildly successful in sports, and boy, he delivered, um, or rather they delivered. Andrea actually became uh, the Wimbledon Junior singles champion. Uh, just she became one of the top young tennis players in the world, um, which you know led to potential issues where the you know, Czechoslovak government was very worried about her defecting and with very good reason. Bobby Holik, became one of the greatest players in you know great great junior hockey players in the country. And earlier you talked about how much inspiration there was uh, for these players based on what had happened in the earlier years in 1969. So Bobby, Polik uh, had been born in 1971, and he was part of a group that came of age immediately following these 1969 matches. So they grew up, all the kids in this era grew up on stories uh, that their parents told them about, look, the Soviets invaded us. The Soviets still occupy us. And so these kids grew up on the bleeping Russians are here and how much they hated them. And they grew up on stories of how Yaroslav Holik, Yiji Holik, and these other men, these young men had fought the Soviets on the ice and inspired the nation. So they still looked back at how they had been able, their country had been able to fight back against the Soviets through hockey. And so what happened is you had a whole generation of boys who were obsessed with hockey and played hockey and saw it as the way to fight back against the Soviet Union. And the way I describe it in the book is it was sort of ironic. The Soviets, in their invasion, actually created the inspiration for the greatest generation of hockey players Czechoslovakia had ever had, a country that had had great hockey players. So Bobby Holik comes of age in the late 1980s. And Bobby has become one of the great young players in the country. It was uh he was deemed at one point to it was between him and Pavel Bure. So Pavel Bure was the star at that star young player for the Soviet Union. Soviet Union wasn't letting anybody escape during these years while Czechoslovak players were escaping. Uh the so, so Pavel Bure was this great young player, and NHL Scouts said. If we could draft anybody in the world and we knew they could come, the first two players in the draft would be uh, Bobby Holik and Pavel Bure. Well, the concern was these two guys won't be able to come. So, hmm, what should we do? Well, as this is all going on, late 1980s, a great, another great Czechoslovak tennis player, uh, had moved west. So this is Ivan Lendl, the great uh men's tennis player the, who the most successful in terms of just domination in uh, holding the number 1 spot for the most weeks in the 1980s. Uh Ivan Lendl was this dominant tennis player in the 1980s and he just got sick of the, you know, being held back by the the communist government in Czechoslovakia. So unlike Martina Navratilova who had announced that she was defecting, Lendl just stopped coming home. He just said, "You know what? I, I I think I'm going to live in my mansion in Connecticut, and becoming a big, you know, sports star in Connecticut, he was tapped to become part of the senior brass for the Hartford Whalers hockey team, and so he was a major advisor, major, you know, on the advisory board for the hockey team. And Lendl, like well, all young men from Czechoslovakia at this point, had been a massive hockey fan, and had actually. Been a huge fan of Jaroslav Holik. He would, uh, Lendl would go to games in Czechoslovakia, sneak out onto the rafters So at games so he could, could get a better look at Jaroslav. And he said to the Hartford Whalers brass, if this Bobby Holik kid is anything like his dad, he's going to be great. And sure enough, the Hartford Whalers make him the 10th player picked without in NHL knowing draft.
1: if they can ever get their hands on him. They use their top draft pick to get him
0: and that without knowing if Bobby Holik will even come to the West. And meanwhile, there are all sorts of, you know, there were uh, there were things in papers that suggested Bobby Holik may have already defected. So uh, the single person I spoke to the most in writing this book was Bobby Holik. Bobby Holik was an extraordinary help in this whole project. Um, He spoke to me as much as I needed. He introduced me to his family and and introduced me to anybody else I needed to speak to. And I sent Bobby a clip from the L.A. Times saying, you know, uh, Czechoslovak hockey player may have already defected. And Bobby said to me... (laughs) Well, that's pretty funny because I was back in Czechoslovakia back then. I had no idea any of this was going on. And I was just trying to become so great that I could make it to the West. And in fact, what he had done was he had joined the military a year early. You have to serve two years in the military. You can get in really big trouble if you sneak out before you're done with your service. And he had decided, I'm going to join the military a year early. So Then I can serve my two years and find a way to defect and get to the West.
1: And of course he does and ends up playing, um, trying to remember, New Jersey? Is that where I remember him playing? So he
0: starts with Hartford. He does, in fact, go to the Hartford Whalers. But he ends up getting traded to the New Jersey Devils, Hmm. where he becomes a star. He becomes a really integral part of the New Jersey Devils, uh, helps lead them to two Stanley Cup championships. And he also makes two all-star teams. He is a a really terrific player in the NHL.
1: Well, there's so many other stories here but um, I, I do want to save them for readers of the book but there's one I do want to close on which is you know Czechoslovakia breaking out from under the Soviet yoke and eventually splitting into the you know Czechia or the Czech Republic and Slovakia um, and the fact that you do have, You know, Dubcek, there's a famous scene, which I I remember from being younger, but you can see it uh, on YouTube easily of Dubcek and Václav Havel uh, speaking to this huge crowd in the square. And it all ties back to these same stories we're talking about. But make the connection with hockey for us. What happened to these Czech players and their kids and this now free country? Um, How did this sense of freedom Kind of manifest itself in their hockey experience afterwards.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, one of the things that I uh, love about what you just talked about with um, Dubček and Václav Havel mm-hmm. uh, is yeah, Dubček had disappeared for quite some time. And all of a sudden, you start seeing revolutionary forces at work in Czechoslovakia and in fact, even hockey players themselves started getting involved. Uh, You had some of the top players in the country attending rallies. Uh, You had this, one of my favorite scenes in the whole book is one hockey player going to the center ice and talking about how important it was to support the revolution and then singing the national anthem. And a couple days later, his team decides to boycott playing games in support of the revolution. And they instantly go out to Wenceslas Square Mm -hmm. where people are looking up at a balcony and suddenly they see a person they haven't seen for two decades. They look up at the balcony and they start chanting the same name that the Swedish crowd had. They start chanting the name Dubcek, and suddenly Dubcek appears on this balcony. It's—I mean—I get that's tears crazy. in my eyes just thinking about this. It, it, this is another of these things you can actually see on YouTube. It's an extraordinary moment, and this is really this. This is the point where you can tell this revolution is actually working. So, in the aftermath of the revolution, it becomes this really um, very different. I mean, obviously, very different world, but it's one that's very uncertain for people. Um, On one side, you have people able to succeed wildly under the new system. People are able to make money in ways they hadn't been able to before. Um, But also, um, they become able to go travel anywhere. They had been locked behind the Iron Curtain, and now they're free. And so you have this incredible... I mean, immediately, young hockey players in the country are all able to go off and play in the NHL. And they... I should add, so do uh, the top Soviet players very quickly. And so what you've got now is a complete change in the NHL. At first, there's incredible pushback. I mean, really nasty pushback against these players um, that you've got people talking, calling them commies and trying to harm them on the ice for where they came from. But these uh, Czechoslovak and Soviet players really changed the way hockey was played in the West. And so it became this kind of combination of what there was before, a much more physical game, now with this much, uh, a lot more finesse and passing and weaving. Well, I also talked about though there was this very mixed world where Czechoslovakia not only has all the highlights of democracy and capitalism, you, you're free, you can make money, but also things become much more difficult. And people can lose money. Uh, you can go bankrupt, and so a lot of people are having a difficult time in the country. And it, the country splits off into Czech Republic, Czechia, as you said, and Slovakia. And they're trying. People are trying to, you know, make their se- make sense of the new world. And there's a, a loss of a lot of joy. There's a real demoralization. And there becomes an increasing sense of what, what really represents us? What can we really support? And as they did before, they continue to turn to their hockey teams. And their hockey teams in the late 1990s and the early 2000s end up bringing them joy and a sense of unity and pride in ways that perhaps different from when they were fighting against the communists, but continue to give them inspiration.
1: This is such... There's, there's just the tip of the iceberg for, for all the stories that you've addressed. And so I'll point out again, the book is Freedom to Win. And it does have a subtitle, which is uh, longer than most <laughs> Slovakian village names. Um, but in, in summary, it's a Cold War story of the hockey team and how the, the people reacted to it.
0: I, I got to add, there's one part of the the subtitle that I do want to add on this that that I didn't mention in the whole uh, in the whole discussion, What's which that? is and Olympic Gold. This book cannot end until we have a major match in which our team is playing for the Olympic gold. So I just
1: want to underline that. oh, that's right, because the the one thing that maybe we left unsaid is in nineteen sixty nine, the, the Czechs beat the beat the Soviets twice. And there are these many cases of taking it to the Soviets and even in future years of having great success. But it's almost like some kind of curse on the Czechoslovakian exactly. team that even when they have these great victories, when it comes to getting through that round and getting to a final match, they just can't take the Olympic gold or the world championship. They um,
0: cannot take the Olympic gold.
1: But That's it does right. happen, right?
0: It just might happen. Yeah. Yes. Okay.
1: Well, well Leave the mystery there for people who aren't uh, international hockey fans. They will they will read the story and appreciate it there. Um, but I do want to end by asking you a question from our chatterbox again. The chatterbox is wise, so hopefully it will not ask you the same question you had before. Which... <laughs> I do I do remember I do remember You're, the question what was the from question? before.
0: It was if I could move to any country. That's right. Uh, if I if I could go, you and know, said you wanted to
1: go back to Spain. Yep.
0: Yes, yep. exactly.
1: The 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 chatterbox wants to know. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be?
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the, the number one thing, I, I actually think about this quite a bit because I do have a 17-year-old son. And uh-huh. I think a lot about the type of advice I want to give him. And the number one advice I, would, I do give 17-year-old son and uh, that if I could go back to 20-year-old me, it would be say yes more the more things that you get offered to do Mm -hmm. say yes more frequently. So one of the things I have found is I tend to be sort of a cautious person and, and people say, Hey, let's go to fill in the blank town over the weekend. And, I too often say no that you know I, I, I would have to restructure everything that's already set up. And I think the more the more that you can say yes and just try to go out and do things you hadn't planned on or things that sound fun, you know, join organizations or join clubs or play a sport, whatever it is, say yes to new things more.
1: Great advice. Ethan, thanks for returning to the show and chatting with me. Congratulations on a book that's getting praise from from two very different quarters, which is praise from the sports journalists and the hockey community, but also from Cold War scholars and historians. We appreciate you joining us.
0: Thank you so much. This was really fun.
1: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.